Your Stories is a wonderful opportunity to share all the highs and lows of being a nerd. You know that hobby you have that you don't talk to anyone about? It's a secret you don't like to share because it might make you feel weird. Maybe you're into something different. Uh, comic books, fantasy football, push-ups. Your Stories, to me, has been this really kind and welcoming space where people just have the guts to be really honest and they share their voices and their stories with everyone there. No questions asked. Uh, I've heard stories about all those things. Uh, maybe not not a lot of push-ups. I maybe haven't heard a lot of stories about push-ups. The Nerdalogs is group therapy meets Toastmasters. I know there's always a place where my odd thoughts and unusual habits will be welcomed and championed in a warm, supportive environment by other nerds just like me. And what's fun is you'll see people in the audience uh, one month, and then all of a sudden they uh, go up and tell their story. So your story becomes their story and their story is your story and then it's our story and then it's a podcast so it's everybody's story and then you've shared it and gosh that's great huh and even if you don't think you're a nerd you probably are that's something Hey everybody, my name is Eric Garneau, and you're listening to part two of the Nerdalogs Presents Your Story February 2015 podcast, which we're calling House Rules in honor of our guest, the fantastic House Theater Troupe of Chicago. Uh, this month they're ramping up for their next production, an Americana Arthurian epic called The Hammer Trinity, and you'll hear a preview from that in this episode. You'll also hear stories from uh, House Theater dramaturg Derek Matson, Nerdalogs member Claire Friedman, and our friend Nathan Robert. Uh, and there's music from myself, Claire Friedman, and Dwight Hassler. This is like madness. I'm sure you didn't expect that last sentence. Uh, as I'm recording this, the nerds have just gotten back from a fantastic weekend of shows in L.A., one of which you'll hear on this podcast in about a month. And we are ready to hit Chicago hard again, so here is some super cool stuff we have coming up. Uh, first, this Sunday, we've got our next Your Stories recording in town, which for this month is taking place at Threadless HQ, the base of one of the coolest businesses in Chicago. Uh, and it's February, so that means it's time for our third installment of Fan Fiction February. We've got a great lineup of storytellers in a cool-as-fuck venue, so I'd come if I were you. Details for the show are on Nerdalogs.com or on our Facebook page. Uh, we also have the usual sweet roundup of podcasts like Talking Games with Tim and Clayton every Tuesday and MBSing with Mary Beth Smith every Wednesday. We also, also, are testing a brand new game uh, we're developing called Fisticuffs all around Chicago. Uh, and yes, we are making games now. Deal with it, dudes who say we can't do what we want. Do what I want all the time. Yeah. Uh, anyway, if you would be interested in helping us get this product into fighting shape, check out the Nerdalogs Facebook page and sign up for a Chicago playtest soon. And apologies for that last pun. Uh, I think that's all I've got for you today, guys. So for now, please enjoy this episode, and we'll be back next week with a bonus... <laughs> Next up, Christopher Crotwell of Chicago, Illinois, <laughs> writes into our program with a heartfelt request. He says, Dear Nerdalogs, I requested this song because I really love it. But did you know that Eric Garneau loves it too? <laughs> it meant a lot to him in his younger days. The lyrics, while pretending to maintain a clever, ironic distance, actually said something very heartfelt and deeply sad about the human condition vis-a-vis -vis falling in love. 
It's weird that I talked more about Eric's feelings in this letter than my own. (laughs) (laughs) But what are you going to (laughs) do? What we're going to do, Christopher, is make your request our... Number two! (laughs) I met someone at the dog show. She was holding my left arm But everyone was acting normal So I tried to look nonchalant We both said I really love you The Shriners loaned us cars We raced up and down the sidewalk 20,000 million times Why did they send her Over anyone else How should I react things happen to other people they don't happen at all in fact when you're following an angel doesn't mean you have to throw your body off a building somewhere they're meeting on a pinhead calling you an angel calling you the nicest things i heard they had a space program when they sing you can hear there's no air sometimes i think i kind of like that and other times i think i'm already there Gonna ask for my admission Gonna speak to the man in charge The secretary says he's on another line Can I hold for a long, long time? I found out she's an angel I don't think she knows I know I'm worried that something might happen to me If anyone ever finds it out Off a building Somewhere they're meeting on a pinhead Calling you an angel Calling you the nicest things I heard they had a space program When they sing you can't hear There's no air sometimes I think I kind of like that And other times I think I'm already there When you're following an angel Doesn't mean you have to Throw your body off a building Somewhere they're meeting on a pinhead Calling you an angel Calling you the nicest things When you're following an angel, do you have to throw your body off a building? I don't know if I figure that one out, even still. <laughs> Thank you to Chris Geiger uh, slash Casey Kasten for those introductions. Uh, I don't think he's going to be back for the last song, so let's give it up for Chris filling in that you know, he only did numbers five through two in the program, but he's number one in my heart. <laughs> anyway, so let us hear from House Theater dramaturg Derek Matson. Hey there, everyone. I am uh, the dramaturg, uh, Derek Matson, the dramaturg for this production of The Hammer Trinity. Uh, dramaturg, of course, is sort of being a professional nerd of the theater, which is why I'm so delighted to be invited to be here. That is often how I describe what I do, is that I'm a professional theater nerd. Uh, after you get over the whole dramaturg, did you say dramaturg? No, no. Dramaturg, um, actually. 
Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about magic in these works, in these, uh, in this cycle of plays, and how magic functions in this world. Uh, part of my job as a dramaturg is to read what the writers have created and begin. Um, making sense of it for myself and also being a kind of ideal audience member who is watching and um, trying to understand it in a way that a writer, of course, who's living in the world and who's created the world can't kind of maybe as objectively see it. And assessing, for me, I was trying to assess how how magic works here and, and, and what it's doing. We have three storytellers in, in this world that the house is creating. And uh, the storytellers are are wizards. They are magicians uh, in a way. And they use once upon a time as a kind of talismanic incantation that transports people uh, in in various ways. Um, I think it's interesting that one of the ways we've talked about how their magic functions is that they are master linguists and they know how to use all kinds of different languages and they speak to different forms and to different, not only to different people, but they can speak to other uh, creatures. They speak to foxes and they speak to birds and they speak to dragons and they speak to the wind and they speak to the grass and they, they have all kinds of different ways of talking to people. And part of the magic of that storytelling that they're doing is spin in a way. What, what would be sort of a contemporary way of putting it? That they are masters of spin. They're masters of a point of view. And the magic that they can perform is really about persuasion. And it's interesting to think of it, I think, for me, because this persuasion is about creating truth. We're sort of asked to, how can we say what truth is? And I think in a, in a lot of ways, these storytellers that we meet in these, in these plays are determining truth for us. And we're put in different positions to understand oh, the positions that they're coming from and what their points of view are and how they're manipulating things in order to persuade us to their, their different positions. I think, too, that what's interesting to me about the magic of this world is that um, there is a kind of magic to storytelling itself that we're experiencing over the course of the plays. Um, they participate in a, uh, a kind of ritual that theater going, of course, is a sort of ritual. And storytelling is a kind of ritual that um, that all myths and fairy tales have these kinds of patterns that were familiar to us and that we sort of um, – when we feel those patterns, we sort of know what's going to happen next. We know that the the hero is going to rise in a certain way or meet adversity at a certain moment or meet a new person who's going to help or hurt the cause of the hero. And um, it, the, those patterns to me are really, I, I think, magical because they are familiar to us and they, they offer us a kind of sense of control or a sense of comfort. There is a kind of healing that that uh, communal storytelling pattern uh, offers us. I think also that the the magic that they're doing, there is a very practical aspect, of course, to it in in the theater that we're watching. We watch air battles happen in a very compressed theatrical space. We watch battles at sea happening in in one little compressed place. Um, to me, that is a kind of uh, spellbinding of of communal uh, dreaming uh, that we do when we go to the theater. And that it uh, inspires us as well, which is a kind of, of magic. And that we're all sort of participating in a collective imaginary. And to me, that's part of why uh, these shows are really special. I've worked in a lot of realist theaters. A lot of, uh, I've done a lot of kitchen sink dramaturgy where you are, um, you know, finding factual information about 
a, an, an election from the 1940s or, uh, you know, uh, late 19th century Russia for Chekhov or something like that. <laughs> and so it's really fascinating and fun to jump into a completely created and imaginary world. Um, and I think that what I love about it is because these plays are, are wrestling through kind of questions of, of all of our collective identity as a kind of American community, um, but placing us in this completely epic imaginary fantasy world where we can kind of have or move and begin looking at those things. And I think that's kind of uh, a very magical, magical thing to do. And it makes me happy to be part of the project. So I wanted to just uh, say, I hope you all come and, and see these plays. They are nine hours. I know. It is, it's a lot of theater. But uh, it will transport you and I think uh, take you to a very special place. February 20th. Yes, am I getting the date right? February 20th to May 3rd. Uh, Saturday, Sunday. That's the whole cycle. Is that correct? Yes. 2 to 11? Yes. Food? There's yeah. food. There's food. <laughs> <laughs> Come break bread with us, and I uh, hope to see you there. Thanks. Oh man, thank you so much, Derek. Uh, serious uh, note: if if anyone has ever read the book Super Gods by Grant Morrison, he is my favorite author. Uh, he's a comic book author, so the book is like one quarter history of the comics medium. It's like a quarter autobiography. It's like a quarter uh, criticism of the art form, and then a quarter like. I did a lot of drugs and did a lot of weird things and yeah, magic. So Grant, Grant talks about how magic is nothing but storytelling as well and uh, it's really fascinating. Like when he would say, write the flash. So he, he thought that he could summon the spirit of Mercury by only thinking about things that were fast. And you know what? It worked for him and he's a fucking good author. So I, I think, I think there's something to that. Even if it sounds crazy. Even if. Right on. Magic is stories, guys. We're making magic tonight. So, coming next to the stage, good friend of ours, uh, been to your stories, I think, the last two out of the three months, and he's told some, uh, some great stuff, so I can't wait to hear what's up tonight. Mr. Nathan Roberts. Um, so before I tell the story, I want to know who came out to use your stories last month? Anyone? Clive, if you came out to use your stories last month. Okay, that's not as well as I was hoping for. <laughs> so I told a story last month, and it was called Will You Please Spend New Year's With Me? And this is uh, Will You Please Spend New Year's Eve With Me, part two. Loosely tied into the theme. January 2nd, 2015. One day or night, I should say, that I'm not likely to soon forget. And this is not just because I spent the night sleeping in the stairway outside the door to my apartment. <laughs> At 8 p.m. in the evening, I stood pacing back and forth on Kimball Avenue near Irving Park, tracing my steps in car lengths. Left turn, march. Right turn, march. 36 revolutions. 37, 38. Puffing on a cigarette with my hands in my pocket, waiting for my friend to come and park so we could go back into the heat and warmth. If I had been in my old neighborhood, at least there would have been a place for me to sit, lovingly provided by the very soul my friend would have just would have just immensely pissed off. Mm. On that note, here are a few examples of house rules that I've been subjected to. Rule number one, no smoking in the house. 
Rule number two: No smoking cigarettes in the house. <laughs> It is always important to differentiate. <laughs> Rule number three: Everything that breaks is your fault, and you must fix it, or and or pay to fix it. Rule number three: A. All of the garbage and mess is yours, and you must clean it. Rule number four: Stop picking at it. <laughs> Rule number five. The next time you bring a girl to visit, can you make sure she'll at least be around for a while? I promise this will all make sense. As I waited for my friend, I figured that it would be a good time to check my voicemail, as one does. This was no ordinary voicemail. It had been sitting in my box for over a day and a half, not because of any technological negligence on my part. But because I already knew the overall tone and had a fair guess at the content, I had been saving this message. I had been saving it because I knew the effect it would have on me, like a lava lamp slowly exploding inside of me, oozing feels through every pore. <laughs> Good feels, happy feels. And as sure as I stand here before you, or sit here, I guess. I have no problem in admitting that listening to this voicemail and hearing these words I had been waiting to hear, I got so choked up that I forgot how to breathe for a minute. Deep breath in, slow exhale out. The words stuck such a chord within me that I choked on the content. I would share some of these words with you tonight, but it seems akin to tearing off a piece of flesh. Of、uh, breaking some sort of secret covenant or opening Pandora's box, it would be a betrayal of not only trust but of the heart. This was a message meant only for myself.、Uh, the notion of hard and fast guide—sorry, the notion of rules of hard and fast guidelines that are meant to be infallible. It's an interesting concept to me. Things like "Thou shall not kill" or the speed limit is 65 miles per hour. These are things which everyone is supposed to agree on tacitly, to just accept as an everyday assumption. The oldest cliche in the book is that rules are made to be broken, and that has some truth to it as well. Um, what would a game of soccer be if someone decided that they would just Suddenly, pick up the ball and run with it,、um, without any punishment or due course. It would be a different game entirely. So, to some extent, rules these supposed black and whites, which I can't read, which burst through the gray, are identifiers. But I think that. It is the these things which is it's it's us making these rules, our own attempts to embrace the gray, which are more telling. Small things like you get a resource for both of your initial settlement placements, <laughs> or bounce shots count for two cups. Our house rules are who we are, are who we truly are. With this being said, I would like to tell you some of my house rules for relationships, or at least as they work for me. These go above and beyond the traditional concept of the deal breaker or of something which you find attracting and alluring. 
these rules, these guidelines, at least for me, touch on the very marrow, the essence, so to speak, of what it is to be happy and healthy and sharing your life with somebody else. Rule the first, common interests. Now, it isn't, necessary, it isn't necessary to find someone who likes everything that you like. It is, however, important to have someone appreciate what it is that you do. In college, I dated a material sciences engineer. Uh, when I would talk to her about how I had to read 80 pages of the brothers Karamazov before I was able to go to bed and how I had this and that paper I had to work on, she dismissed my problems as not real work. Because I wasn't doing Calc 3, and I didn't have to try and find the derivative of who gives a fuck. (laughs) (laughs) Find someone who wants to at least try out the things that you are into. That wants to embrace your inner fandom. And as a corollary, you should try and embrace theirs as well. Rule the second, communication. When I'm in a relationship with someone, I want to spend every moment of my waking day with them. They're the last thing I want to see at night before I fall asleep, and the first thing when I wake up. Depending on circumstances, it isn't necessarily important that I see my significant other every day. However, I would like to at least talk to them on the phone or at least send them some texts back and forth Constant and freaking communication is key. One of the best things in the world is to wake up to a text from the person you love just wishing you a beautiful morning, even though they can't be there, even though they may be in a different time zone. Rule number three. Rule number three and the final, sorry. Cook together. There's something special about sharing a meal with someone. There's something more special about making a meal for someone when they help you make that meal with them. The best is when you make the meal with them, each helping each other out and doing their part. I'll make the salad if you make the soup. These are only suggestions. These are only my suggestions. Follow them or don't. One way or another, I hope you find someone who will give you that call. Someone you wait to hear from. Someone who understands your house rules. Thank you. See, now we're talking about like getting calls. This is prime stuff for EWTN. Yeah, it's a callback. You guys were on to me that time. Uh, coming up next, you just saw her sing beautifully. Now she's going to tell a story. Claire Friedman. I wasn't expecting it either. <laughs> Who here was? Oh, hi. Betsy uh, stood behind me and said, Do you know the meaning of the word pusillanimous? And I said, Yes. She said, What does it mean? And I said, I do not know. <laughs> she said, Pusillanimous means to lack courage or determination, it means to be timid. And you are pusillanimous. 
This was very harsh, considering that the uh, task in question was that two magenta squares I had picked were too close to the same shade. And I should really be trying to match something like, oh, I don't know, a magenta and a red. Betsy was my color professor in art school. Um, 50 years previous, she had started teaching the class. (laughs) (laughs) And had no time for your bullshit. Uh, the, the task at hand was, uh, trying to make two colors look like the same color, even though they were different colors and mine were too easy. So I was a coward. Uh, I once heard her say to a girl, um, during a final critique, uh, you're in Roxy's class, you're in Roxy's painting class, right? And the girl said, yes, I am. And she said, never tell Roxy you took my class. I don't want to be embarrassed. She's great. (laughs) She was a great teacher. And she was right. I'm a coward. I am an absolute, absolute coward. Uh, I'm going to talk about three people during this story. The second is uh, Matthew McConaughey. So Uh. (laughs) in Matthew McConaughey's uh, Oscar speech... A couple years ago, he talked about uh, who his hero was, and his answer was myself. Um, he said when he was 15, somebody came up to him and asked who his hero was, and he said, my hero is me when I'm 25. And when he was 25, he said, my hero is me when I'm 35. And he said that because Matthew McConaughey is a narcissist. <laughs> but he's doing all right, so. All right, all right, all right. Um, so maybe we can learn something from that particular arrogant set of abs. Uh, I was thinking a lot about that recently because I was thinking about, uh, if I would be my hero as a 15 year old and about exactly 10 years ago when I was 15, uh, I was in the process of losing my 4.0, uh, which had been my, uh, primary goal in high school. It was to be valedictorian of my class and I wasn't. Because, as you may have guessed from the previous pusillanimous story, I thought I was smarter than I was. So that didn't work out. I had a very few specific set of goals for myself that really accumulated and ended with high school. And so if you were to ask 15-year-old Claire, what do you think you want 25-year-old Claire to be? I don't think she would have a question other than, I hope that she was valedictorian when she was 18. <laughs> The third person I'm going to talk about is my dad. Um, my my dad is Dennis. Uh, he, when he was 25, was in the process of getting married and was also the vice youngest ever vice president of IDS, which is a division of the financial services division of American Express, which you may notice is boring. Uh. Um, <laughs> Both he and my mother, and probably in the future my two brothers, are all MBAs, um, and I'm not. Uh, I went to art school, and even when I did transfer to art school, I wound up getting a degree in both painting and arts administration, which is a, a way for you to say with your major, I'm not confident enough in my art to determine that I can support myself with it in the future, so I'm going to say that I like management. <laughs> We got actors here. (laughs) 
even for a time while I was in art school, I thought, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to get an art degree and then an MBA, which is a ridiculous thing to do. <laughs> and I didn't do because that's stupid as fuck. <laughs> and instead... I decided to live life for a while without any specific goals and just try and get good at a lot of things and work with a lot of good people. And I've done that, and now I'm 25, and I'm looking ahead to when I'm 35 and what I'll need to do then to be my own hero, per Mr. McConaughey's wishes. (laughs) And the only real goal I have for myself as a 35-year-old is that I want my kids to be proud proud of what it is that I'm doing. Which is a lot, because it predetermines, one, that I need to be proud of what I'm doing, two, that I have children, three, that I can speak, and four, that I'm alive, (laughs) which is a big goal for me. A child who, as a hypochondriac teenager, thought that she would surely die before she was 30, so she's got to get a lot of accomplishments in before then. (laughs) As it stands right now, I don't know how I'm going to get there. I don't have goals. I have drive, but not determination, because just like Betsy said, I am pusillanimous. Thank you, Claire. All right, guys, we got one more uh, set of speakers coming up tonight. Actually, it's the same set of speakers you saw last half. They're going to do the prologue to part two of the Hammer Trinity. So once again, let's see Chris Matthews, Matt Edmonds, Gabby Labatka, Joe Bianco, Patrick Falcon, and Derek Matson. Uh, before we begin, uh, I think it's worth noting that this is the prologue to uh, the, the second play, part two, The Crownless King. Uh, so, so far, we've... We heard uh, the prologue we read before, uh, Hap the Golden's story, our entry into the world, and we went on an adventure with, uh, with several of our characters, and we sort of fulfilled his vision of what a united land would look like. Um, we start part two with sort of the other side of the coin, the, the sort of undercurrent of uh, villainy, question mark, that is sort of pervasive in part one and uh, now is coming maybe a little bit more to the fore as things start to uh, complicate and unravel, question mark. Um, that begins us with uh, Iric Obsidian's tale, The Crownless King. Once upon a time, all the folk were free, their liberty defended by a great and powerful hammer. For an age the hammer was held by the folk most fit to claim it. Only the mightiest of arms, brightest of minds, and noblest of hearts could bear the hammer's weight. And so for an age the folk inspired themselves to greatness. All was right in the land. But then, an arrogant and powerful magician named Hap the Golden told a story in which only one of privileged blood had strength to lift the hammer in which the folk were weak and required a crown to rule them. And though it was only a tale, it began a bloody bloody reign of kings and queens who claimed themselves the masters of the folk. One by one, the folk were made to kneel, until at last a brave alliance, declaring themselves crownless, led revolution against the hammer in the fields at New Plymouth. 
It was there, fearing the blood of thousands on her crown, that Catherine Grey, Lady of the Grass, declared, The hammer is too heavy for my hand to hold alone. And so a republic was formed, led by representatives of five lands, Gordon Pride, Blood Rite of the Lion, Warden of the Vale, Henley Hawthorne, Pin Crown of the Delta Throne, Davy Boone, Keeper of the Salt, Caelan Wayne, First Ranger of the Glaze, and of course... Catherine Grey, Lady of the Grass, Loneborn of the Lavender Crown. They called themselves The Hand, joining together to raise the hammer in defense of freedom for all. It seemed the Lady's Compromise had forged a fragile peace. But then, a wondrous, pitiful thing occurred. Gordon places a loving hand on Catherine's belly. A child was conceived. When news of this reached Hap the Golden, he hatched a devious scheme... For if a story could be spoken that this child would one day raise the hammer all alone, Hap may once again install a crown above the folk. A brilliant plot turning on a single mournful detail. Hap draws his blade, fade to black as he murders Catherine and Gordon. Lightning and thunder. Casper enters carrying the hammer. One by one the heroes arrive. Abraham limping badly. Wilk clutching his side. Rien and hollow Tom. And thus a humble, honest youth was pawned to make a king, while proud and worthy folk were made to kneel. Each kneels in turn, Hap kneels, Casper raises the hammer high, lightning and thunder. The scene shifts to Havenston, July speaking into Davy's ear. To rescue the folk from this piteous tale, a girl, orphaned by fire and blessed with a powerful voice of her own, set out to turn the tide against the golden. Havenston folk anxiously enter the bar, followed by Bilge to find Davy. July steps back to witness as he speaks to his people. President accounted for. What's the word, Captain? The new king has built the shipyard. As keeper of the salt, my course is clear. If any of you meet the mutiny, get to it, otherwise somebody speak. Havenston backs you to the man, but Davy, we ain't fit for war. This king is young enough. Maybe we can come to some terms. Aye, this king is young. But we know Hap the Golden guides him. And that hammer is too heavy once it's been swung to move aside a sway from off its mark. And make no mistake, its mark is Havenston. And why build a shipyard but as an act of aggression? To take our salt by force, the property which Havenston has preserved for itself by generations. Should we treaty then? And kneel to the crown? If it ducks the hammer. What sailor lost at sea can help but heed the lighthouse? Even when he spies the rock himself. We folk were not born special. But have we forgot what we are capable of when we stand up on our own two feet? Have we? Then what need we, this iron stag king? Oh, he's clambered his way to raise the hammer, so be it, good on him. <laughs> and now he demands we sacrifice for a greater good. Whose greater good? Not ours. So I say, any man worth his salt kneels only so that his brothers and his sisters, and above all, his children, may climb upon his back and retire for their own greater good, or for the good of any who call themselves crownless. I say, we sail for Havenston's good, and no greater. 
And if this king wants to take our salt, I say we make him swim for it. Aye, aye. To your ships. The captains exit to their ships, leaving July and Davy. She hands him his mask. He puts it on for the first time in many years. Sparking the pride of the crownless, she set in motion a great chain of events, one that will shake this golden age to its foundations. Exit Davy. July's foxes gather to her. And so, a second story grows in audience of folk who will fight and die for their right to live free. Of a young boy wrestling the tethers from his tail, and of the girl who will steal him away to the edge of darkness where his savior sleeps, confined, sequestered, and dreaming to stir, the crownless king. Story save us all. Thank you, House Theater. For our final song of the night, we have lost Chris Casey Kasem Geiger, but we have found Joe Casey Kasem Gennaro. Not Casey Kasem. So. With no further ado, let's get to our number one. No one requested our number one song of the night. It fit with the theme, so we're going to play it. It's a good song. We don't have to follow your rules. We make the rules, damn it. Now you're going to listen to this song, and you're going to like it. It's the House of the Rising Sun, made famous by the animals, which is what all of you are. Every animal occasionally has to go... Number one, number one. <laughs> oh, that last part wasn't ad lib. I did not approve any of these. Nope, no one knew I was doing. No way that would happen. I don't know who called you all animals. Jeez, that was very nice. <laughs> Yeah. 
www.nerdalogs.com Thank you all. Thank you all. I am Grabbot23548X.